Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings. And welcome to another installment of the Just for Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Hello, this is Leslie Gist, and you're listening to the Gist of Freedom. Um, tonight we have a very special guest. Is that Hi, you, Leslie. Mr. Russell? You? I'm doing yes. great. <clears throat> I know you were busy out and about, and you're taking uh, some time off your busy schedule to come and talk to us about Jerk Chicken, the African Burial uh, Monument in New York City, and your fabulous trip to Africa. Um, do you want me to read your bio, or do you want to just get right into this? And you well, want to tell everybody what you do? Uh, let's see. I guess I can. I can say. Okay, um, great. I, I'm a Long-time community and cultural activist, um, was involved with the sit-ins, and uh, through the subsequent years, the uh, Black Arts Movement, Black Movement, um, and uh, in 1991 was uh, part of the African Descending Community when the African Burial Ground was rediscovered in Lower Manhattan and uh, volunteered uh, with the Office of Public Information, Education and Information. Um, and then in 2006, when the uh, site became a national monument, uh, I was invited to begin to do programming there and uh, have uh, volunteered um, at the site. And during that same period, because of the request to do the programming, I began to do my own study and scholarship. And uh, that has led me to uh, a point where I'm contextualizing the burial ground within the broader context of what it has to tell us about uh, what I would call the, the, the aphrogenic meta-narrative of the slave trade. There's the economic, there's the study of the trade itself, the study of... Uh, this plantation system, the urban slave system, the abolitionist, uh, but there's also uh, the perspective from which we can look at the ways in which those things that Africans brought with them from the continent served to be the root of the development of what I would describe as the first pan-African cultures of uh, local cultures of place, 
um, in the diaspora. And we can look today at those cultures and we can see the ways in which those Africans retain dimensions of what they brought with them. And, okay, let uh, me um, ask you a question before you continue. Um, this show was originally scheduled for Sunday, April 27th, um, but we had some technical difficulties and we had to reschedule you, and you went to Africa. Um, during that first conversation, you talked about jerk chicken, which really was amazing, um, the history you taught me in that short uh, conversation. Could you explain how the jerk chicken relates to Africa and, and um, the Pan-African yeah, let, movement? Let me, let me um, put it in a slightly broader context. Um, right. When I talk about the Afrogenic uh, meta-narrative. Um, I look at African retentions in five different areas. I look at it in terms of symbols. I look at it in terms of spiritual traditions, language, governance, and last, in terms of cooking. And I look at that retention and then look at invention, the ways in which Africans took that African root and invented on one hand those Pan-African cultures and on the other hand cultures of resistance. And then I look at resistance not only through the culture but through um, runaways and rebellions. And when we look at retentions, uh, today a popular African-American dish or Afro-Caribbean dish is jerk chicken. Jerk chicken, as many of us would know, comes from Jamaica, and there was a young Jamaican uh, elementary school teacher who brought a class to the burial ground, and she shared a story with me, which I've later been able to confirm with a number of Caribbean scholars. In Jamaica, in the Blue Mountains, if any of you like coffee, you should try the coffee that comes from the Blue Mountains. But the Blue Mountains were, during slavery times, uh, a place where many Africans uh, went when they liberated themselves so that they could live outside of their enslavement. And very often in order to get to the maroon communities, the uh, free uh, enslaved African communities in the Blue Mountains, they had to travel several nights. And so in the Akan way, Akan of uh, Ghana in West Africa, they would take their meat and they would jerk it full of holes and then they would fill those holes with spices and would wrap the meat in palmetto leaves so that when they were on the trail, they could bury the meat in hot coals, which wouldn't give off smoke to give away their position to the slave catchers. And it was that jerk chicken that went up into the Blue Mountains and eventually came back down into the villages around the Blue Mountains. And today is uh, an integral part of uh, the um, Afro-Caribbean cuisine. Um, so the next time you have jerk chicken, you can be mindful that you're having a meal of resistance. That is incredible. I mean, um, for us to be able to keep that culture going as a way of surviving is um, just it's incredible. Something I'm so pleased to have learned um, from you. And I know you mentioned uh, in our first conversation there was a book that talks about uh, this, the jerk chicken extensively. Could you tell us? Uh, no, I don't the think I referenced book? the. I don't think I referenced the book of the jerk chicken. I've only been able to trace that through conversations with scholars. I haven't seen it written. 
Um, okay. I think the books that I was the book that I was talking about at that point, we were discussing um, African retention in languages, and mm-hmm. I was referencing the work of Lorenzo Dow Turner. And um, I don't know if you are old enough that when you were coming up, you would hear folk talk yeah. about, uh, "Are you hip to that jive?" Or I'm a real hip yeah. cat. Okay. Are those terms um, I was born in the sixties. Are those terms that are familiar to you? Yes. I'm I'm I've heard those expressions before, yes. Okay. So if I say I'm hip to that I'm I'm will hip you to some jive, what am I saying? Are you gonna educate me? Okay. What language would I be speaking? Uh if you um from a scholarly point, I would say Gigi. Well, let's take it back one step further. I'd be speaking Wolof. Both hip and jive are from the Wolof. They are, as is cat. Um, they are three of some 3,500 languages that Lorenzo Dow Turner, the African descendant linguist, and other linguists have traced back to various parts of the African continent. And hip had somewhat the same meaning back in the day as it does now. If I'm going to hip you to something, I'm going to drop some knowledge on you. If I'm hip, I understand. But jive had a specialized meaning. Jive was the story that hid the story. It was the story on top of the story. It was the utter confusion you heard in my voice when you heard me say, what, what, what's that you say, boss? I left the barn door open. You say both mules got out? I don't know how that could have happened. Or, or the contrition in my voice when you heard me say, boss, I, I, I done broke the hole. I can't go out and hold a field. Or the smile on my face when I delivered the soup I just spat in, or better yet, poisoned. The jive story. Mm. We invented a language that allowed us to communicate with each other transparent to the slaveholder. And mm-hmm. hip and jive were a part of that language. And, and if we look today, if we look at... Uh, the, 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 um, the, what we would call slang of, of hip-hop, uh, we're still involved in that. We are still creating language. We're still looking back to our past to inform our future, to, to draw upon um, one of the Adinkra symbols at the burial ground, the Sankofa symbol. Uh, we're looking to the past now, to inform does, our future. Excuse me, Ron. Um, how does Pig Latin fall into this? Linguistic history you're talking um, about. I, that's that's a good question. I would have to go back and look, um, and I, I I don't want to assert uh, an, uh, mm-hmm. an African origin for Pig Latin because I haven't really looked at it. Um, okay. Certainly, the phenomenon is the same. Um, if you came up in New York um, in um, in the 1950s. Um, mm. Uh, and listen to Murray the K and uh, uh, his uh, R&B shows on New York radio. Um, there was also Miyazuri uh, uh, the Kiyazay. I forget now what that language was called, but it was another one of those um, uh, in-group definers, similar to Pig now, Latin. I, um, I don't know if you know, I've been researching the Gist family, and someone I discovered was named... Um, George Sequoia Giss, and he worked um, with the linguist. It was a, a gentleman outside of um, Mobile, Alabama, that uh, discovered a language 
amongst the slaves, and they had um, combined French, um, some dialect from Africa, and some English, and they called it Mobilian um, after Mobile, Alabama. Mm. And and I only read it maybe in two different, I only found two sources, and I've been looking for years to really learn more about this Mobilian from Alabama. And the linguist name is Humboldt, H-U-M-B-O-L-D-T. And there's a monument in the um, the Sequoia Historical Park. And, out of him. and there's another one I ran into in New York City. So he has something to do with this research with this language um, called Mobilian um, mm-hmm. language. So this is all fascinating. Um, and well, you know, you, know not, you and I can talk for hours. But we have we can't get sidetracked. This is why I love having a host because I could go on with you for a long time. But um, where would you like to go next? Would you want to talk about the uh, trip, your, at- well, your trip to Africa? Let me let me go back and talk just a little bit about the burial ground first. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. The African Burial Ground National Monument uh, is a 6.6 acre area in Lower Manhattan, just north of City Hall. It was in use probably from the 1630s until 1795. Uh, There's some argument about when it began, and the dates of the argument are instructive in themselves because they point to three very different ways of looking at history that that can help us, I think, as we look at history. Um, 1712 is the first date uh, for which there is written documentation about the use of that land as a burial ground for Africans. Um, 1697 was uh, the point at which Trinity Church, the official Anglican Church of of New York, uh, no longer allowed Africans or Native Americans to be buried in the churchyard. And yet we know that as early as the 1630s, Africans who were enslaved were in fact farming in an area just north of, um, of where the burial ground is. So scientific historians look for documentation, and they would say 1712 is the starting point. Euro-American historians look to events in Euro-American history to infer uh, events in African life. Whereas Afro-Semitic historians... Go ahead. Before you continue... Uh, could you tell us what era was this? Was this during chattel slavery or indentureship? And well, what period in, in, did this shift from one to the other? Well, in, in, we're talking in both, in all three dates, we are talking um, after um, the English have taken New York from New Amsterdam. Um, by 1712, um, slavery has been declared legal. Uh, we have seen the introduction with the English of the race-based chattel slavery, um, which replaced the earlier Dutch. Um, the difference sometimes is even described that the, under the Dutch, slavery was, was um, a matter of custom, and under the English, it was a matter of law. Um, the, the Dutch practiced a slavery that was rooted in Roman and Dutch law, and, uh, as I say, was a matter of custom. 
But by, by 1712, which was in the late, last of these dates, um, the um, chattel, race-based chattel slavery would have been firmly entrenched. 1630 would have been before 1664, before the Dutch, um, um, the end of the Dutch rule. Um, and you had a situation where uh, 11 of the original cohort of enslaved Africans who'd been introduced in 1625 or 26 had begun to farm um, on their own um, north of, of the freshwater pond that was just north of the burial ground. Okay. Um, All right. So uh, you set the stage of what period we were in. So continue. Okay. Yes. Um, so... Um, the city began to grow. Um, mm -hmm. To get some idea of the growth of the city, in 1653, the uh, Dutch were very concerned about uh, an invasion from the land from the north, at the north, from the, the English, which if you think about it was kind of silly. Why the, the, the English, with the largest navy in the world, would have chosen to invade from the north by land instead of as they eventually did in 1664 by sea is kind of silly. And, and the, 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 the wall itself was kind of ineffective uh, when the, um, it was never used to, um, to hold off the English. And when, in fact, the Native Americans attacked the, the colony, uh, they just merely walked around the wall. But that wall was built by enslaved Africans. The lumber cut from the primeval forest uh, up around um, a stream driven sawmill up around today's 74th Street. And so by 1653, we have Wall Street as the northern boundary of the city. 1746, the English are concerned about an invasion from the French and they build another wall at uh, Chamber Street. So by 1746, that's the northern boundary. Um, and uh, in the 1630s, we know well that um, water is a very sacred element for Africans. Um, it is the, the, the element through which um, we, we pass as we make our transition to become ancestors. It is the medium through which we are able to communicate with the ancestors and they with us. And it's not at all unusual for Africans to begin to bury their loved ones next to water. And so it was, we think, that some of those early Africans began to develop the, 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 the burial ground that was rediscovered in 1991. Um, as the city grew northward, there was this large freshwater pond, some 48 acres, some places 60 foot deep. And it was a freshwater supply for the colony. And as the city grew north, they, they, they had three industries that had two things in common. Uh, they all needed fresh water, and they all stank. If you have ever smelled, um, a, walked past a brewery and smelled the beer or smelled a keg of beer the morning after the party, you know it stinks. If you've been in the country when they're tanning hide, you know it stinks. And I'm told if you're making uh, rope from uh, hemp, it stinks even worse. So they got a rope factory, a tannery, and a brewery. And oh, by the way, they've got some gunpowder they have to store. So it all goes up um, to the area around Freshwater Pond. 
and before long, the, the pond becomes polluted. Um, we know whenever you've got industry, eventually you have pollution. So by the, 18, by the early 1800s, it was polluted. And Alexander Hamilton um, was persuaded, hoodwinked, persuaded by Aaron Burr to enter into a business venture called the Manhattan Water Company. Uh, some would some say that, as I would tend to agree, that Alexander Hamilton was himself of, of African descent. Um, and they had, they had two jobs. The first was to bring fresh water down from Westchester, and the second was to drain the pond. In order to drain the pond, they built a canal that gave us today's Canal Street. And before very long, the canal and the pond began to become swampy, so they took a large hill over by probably today's Canal Street and the East River and a number of smaller hills, and they leveled them as landfill, and they covered the canal, they covered the pond, and they covered the burial ground to a depth of about 20 feet or so. Um, during the 19th century, by and large, the foundations of buildings were only 12 to, 13, 12 to 15 feet deep. So during that period... Largely, the remains were protected. We know of two instances that they were disturbed. One, when A.T. Stewart built the first department store on the corner of Chambers and Broadway, and the other when the uh, city hall station of the uh, Lexington Avenue subway was built. Both of those, one, the, the, the department store, we have a record of the disturbance, and we know just from its geographic location and its depth that they had to have disturbed the remains um, um, when they were building the subway. Um, but by and large, up until the building, the federal building in 1991, um, the burial ground was unknown. When the federal government began its um, construction, um, they had two problems. The first was they were saddled with a federal legislative requirement that they hire an archaeologist to conduct an archaeological impact statement to determine whether or not they would be disturbing any archaeologically important materials. And secondly, they began to find human remains. They were largely concerned with building a building, and so they began very unceremoniously to wrap the remains in newsprint, put them in cardboard boxes, and ship them up to the basement of the gym at Lehman College. When Sonny Abedika Carson, a longtime political and cultural activist in Brooklyn, an Africanist, when he heard what was going on, he took a group of demonstrators over to the site, and they lay down in front of the bulldozers to prevent the, 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 the desecration of the burial ground. And that began some 18 months of protest by the African-descendant community at the end of which five things had been achieved. Number one, we had stopped the desecration of the burial ground. By that time, 419 remains had been removed from the ground and another 200 had been identified and left uh, by ground radar and left in place. Secondly, we assured that there would be a comprehensive plan of study to study the remains. Thirdly, to assure that they were adequately interpreted, they were sent to Howard University for study, what turned out to be seven years of study. And fourthly, we determined, we ensured that at the end of that study, the remains would be returned and reinterred at the burial ground as they were in 2003. Lastly, we assured that there would be a memorialization of the site. And so in 1998, there was an architectural competition. There were 62 entries, and the winning entry by Rodney Leon and Nicole Holland-Dennis, the Ancestral Libation Chamber, 
was dedicated in 2007, and in 2006 we had been designated a national monument and placed under the administration of the National Park Service, and in 2010 we opened a new visitor center. So all of that began in 1991, and the visitor center is now available um, to visit, as is the memorial. They are open from 10 to 4, Tuesday through Saturday. And you can go to the website, nps.gov slash AFBG for African Burial Ground, NPS for National Park Service, nps.gov slash AFBG, and you'll find the African Burial Ground website. There are a number of programs coming up on um, the 14th of the month. Um, there is um, uh, a celebration of, of uh, Juneteenth Day. On the 19th, um, Malcolm X's daughter will be speaking. And on the 24th, the memorial will be open late as a part of a Lower Manhattan Cultural Festival. Um, so you can go to the mm -hmm. website and uh, come down and visit. You can arrange for tours. You can arrange for visits. Uh, the Visitor Center has a 20-minute video and an interactive exhibit. Um, and uh, they get quite a number of visitors, and any of your listeners any, are certainly any invited artifacts? to be among them. Any uh, artifacts when, available? When, when the um, remains of the 419 were reinterred, those artifacts that had been discovered with the remains were reinterred with them. However, replicas were created, and um, in the archaeological section of the visitor center, you can see replicas of the artifacts that were discovered. Um, and how long so, did they have the 419? Um, from, well, um, from how long did they study them? Uh, for seven years. They were at Howard University for seven years. Um, so as I began to look at the lives of these Africans and as I began one, to look one more at... Question. One sure. more question before you go on. And this lecture okay. is awesome, and I don't want to interrupt you, but um, we have another burial ground that was just discovered under a playground in Philadelphia. Are you familiar with that? I, I think I've heard vaguely about it. What, one of the things I think that's important to note is that the discovery, one of the, one of the important things about the discovery of the burial ground in Manhattan is that it highlighted the need to acknowledge and recognize uh, the burial grounds of enslaved Africans throughout the diaspora. And, in fact, here in New York there was another burial ground that was found uh, in East Harlem, uh, there's one near the zoo in Washington, D.C., uh, another in Rhode Island, another in Albany, several of them in the Hudson Valley here in New York. Um, uh, Dr. Michael Blakey, who directed the um, project here in New York, uh, is now at William & Mary in Virginia and is directing um, an archaeological project at an enslaved African burial ground in Richmond, Virginia. Um, in North Carolina, there is an effort to secure uh, the property on which enslaved Africans are buried so that they can be adequately memorialized. Um, in Dallas, Texas, um, Albany, New York, um, I visited two enslaved African burial grounds in, in, um, in Guadeloupe, in French West Indies, 
um, and I understand there may have been another discovered. Um, in Brazil, there's another that has been discovered that, uh, that we know about. So one of the important things about the, the burial ground in New York is that it has furthered that. So it doesn't surprise me that there has been uh, a discovery in Philadelphia because there certainly was a um, significant um, enslaved African community there. Yes, well, the Philadelphia um, site is extremely special because it is the, the uh, site of the oldest um, church, Mother Bethel's church, mm-hmm. um, Richard, Richard Allen's church. Uh, yes. They purchased the land, and they used this site for many years, and then it was taken back um, by the government only for it to be used as a playground right now. So I think, you know, if you guys are interested and um, helping out the Philadelphia people, because they, they definitely need as many supporters as they can get. The, the young man who's in um, is, is one of the leaders that's leading the protest. His name is Michael Cord. He's been guest host on this show, he's an activist. Uh, the name of his organization is ATTAC, A-T-A-C. He's an attorney. So I'm definitely going give, to give you his contact number, and, and hopefully you'll allow me to give him yours. But yes, continue, please do. Um, there's okay. also, you should also tell him, and your listeners might be interested, uh, Fordham mm-hmm. University is assembling mm-hmm. a database of enslaved African burial grounds uh, internationally. And so you can go on the, um, the Fordham website and um, uh, query um, African burial grounds, and you can reach the registry. And they have a web page where you can go on and you can register um, a burial ground with which you're familiar as a part of the registry. Um, they are working towards eventually publishing uh, a directory of all of the ones that are in their database. Okay. Okay, so um, are you uh, finished with that segment as far as the uh, uh, burial ground? I think so, else to say? unless you have questions. Okay. You wrapped it all up, and that's because you are a historian, you're a tour guide, you know. So this is really a lecture, not an interview. And <laughs> I know Sorry about that. No, I wanted to be a lecture because I'm going okay. to edit myself out anyway. Um, <laughs> so we did jerk chicken. We we went over mm-hmm. the burial ground. Um, now let's talk about your trip to Africa. Okay. How long has it been since you've been home? Tell us how uh, long I, were you there? I was there for two weeks from the 15th through the 30th of May. Um, and, uh, you know, I've, I've always felt that, that, that a part of my education and spiritual growth and experience uh, was missing because I had not had the opportunity uh, to make that pilgrimage to the continent and to visit um, some of the, 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 the spiritual sites in, in West Africa. And this year I was able to do that. Um, and so I spent a week in Senegal and another week in Ghana. Um, in Senegal, I had the opportunity. Uh, the, there was a, there's a young brother who works for the Senegalese Ministry of Culture who was here in New York for a year under a special project at the burial ground, and I met him then. And he had just gone home shortly before I arrived and had agreed to do my programming and um, had assured me before I went that I would be um, more than fulfilled intellectually and spiritually 
and he certainly assured that that was the case. Um, standing at the door of no return in Gori um, was, was, was really a, a, a profound experience. Um, as much as you read, it's only as you stand there and you can absorb the sense of the presence of those ancestors um, and, and absorb the, the, the feeling of the relationship between uh, those Africans and the Africans whose remains you honored in Guadeloupe, those Africans whose remains you honored in New York, uh, that you begin to really have um, an experiential understanding of what that door of no return phenomenon is about. Um, in, in Ghana, um, before I visited the, the uh, dungeon at Almina, I visited uh, a river site in um, uh, Asin uh, Murero, I may be mispronouncing that, but uh, also known as Slave River. Um, and it was a river not too far from the Cape Fort and from Omina Dungeon um, where Africans were brought uh, to the north of Ghana. There was a large commercial area into which Africans from various other countries were brought and traded to middlemen who brought them down to the Slave River where those who were no longer marketable were killed uh, and the others were fed and received their last bath and were oiled so that they would look most presentable as they were taken off and sold um, there and then carried off to the dungeons uh, to be transported to the diaspora. Um, now, I have and, to ask you, I have to ask you this. Uh, we're fresh off of a show um, dedicated to the movie Bell, which is about the Zong case, the slave ship that threw 100 and almost 150 bodies into the river for insurance fraud, mm-hmm. what would be some of the reasons why some of the slaves, you said some of them were cleaned up, but let's call them African. Some of them were cleaned up and they were continued on this journey to the Middle Passage, and others, you said, were just murdered. What well, would be some of the that- reasons? Well, remember that the estimates are that some 30 million Africans were stolen from their homes. And by the time they reached the coast, there were only 17 of them left, 17 million. And so when you think about um, months of being chained together um, with very little concern for your well-being, um, being whipped to stay in line, um, being abandoned if, uh, if you were too ill to continue, abandoned to die. Um, so that, that, that within the continent, um, Africans' um, ability to withstand that journey from inland uh, maybe from Cote d'Ivoire into into uh, Ghana and then from uh, the northern part of Ghana down into the Slave River and then down to Omina or, or, or the Cape Dungeon. Um, and it might be a, a woman who was pregnant um, and the baby might have been killed. Um, um, 
so that the mother would be able to continue or the mother might not have been able to continue and would just have been killed. Um, on the, what, on were the, the, what were the survival rates through the Middle Passage? Because when we listen to uh, Alex Haley, um, his album uh, about roots, he mm-hmm. states that it was a larger percentage of the slaves, the Africans, survived than the slavers. So, you know, he talked when he looked at the the list um, uh, when he was doing his research of how many um, Africans were picked up at each port and how many um, arrived through the Middle, now, there's, middle there's, Passage. There's, there's a lot more data on that available now than was when Haley was writing. Um, uh-huh. And Emory University in Atlanta has a... a uh, uh, a database of some 3,500, 3,500 or 35,000, 35,000 uh, slave voyages, and they include the, the the ports where the ships stopped and 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 what Africans were picked up by age, by sex, um, sometimes by by crude um, physical description, and then the places to which they were they were disembarked uh, at the end of the journey. Um, I'm, I'm, it probably parenthetically would be helpful to understand me to understand that I was a bank teller for three months and in that three months I proved up three times. So when it comes to numbers, I'm just very lucky I was born in a year that ended with a zero or I had no idea how old I was. Oh, okay, okay. So I'm not, I'm not good on the figures, but, um, if you just take the, the figure of 30 million, um, and then 17 million, um, and then if, if, you, if you're familiar with, with um, August Wilson's work and he talks about the city of bones, the bones uh-huh. of those Africans that were thrown overboard, uh-huh. thrown overboard because they were worth more for the insurance money than they were worth any longer in the marketplace, uh, thrown overboard because they were ill, because they had died, uh, because they were potentially rebellious. Um, and there was another, I read a paper a while back by a scholar in Nigeria who talked about the cultural meaning of suicide, that for the chiefs in in the area that was being studied, um, if if I was confronted with with an, uh, 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 an unrecoverable violation of my dignity, that suicide represented a way for me to reassert my dignity as a human being. And so it may very well be that some of those Africans um, uh, died as a part of that process. Um, There's some sense that some of them died because they were assured that if they went to the water, and again, let's go back when we're talking about the importance of water, um, in African cosmology, that if they went to the water, they would be going back to Africa. Um, so all of those reasons would be involved in the reasons why Africans would have um, either been um, been thrown overboard or would have uh, opted to, 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 to jump into the water. Wow. Wow. That's a sad, sad... Um commentary is unbelievable that you know only by the grace of God am I here um, someone had to survive that trip 
So um, that's very um, sad to hear. You know, I, one of the mm-hmm. reasons why I focus on the Afrogenic um, meta-narrative is because at the same time that we acknowledge all of the pain, the agony of, of the Middle Passage, of the period of enslavement, it's really, I think, important to keep focused on what we were able to keep and how we were able to develop rich cultures to survive. And that, 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 that we took what we had brought with us from Africa, and out of that, in the same way that we've invented jazz, in the same way that we invented um, um, black sacred music, uh, in the same way that we have done so many things that have contributed to our understanding uh, of ourselves as a people, we were able to make something. And an essential element of what we did was the element of resistance. And so when, when, when we look today not only to that history, but we look to the circumstances of African descendant people today. The idea of, um, of resistance um, is, is one that we, can, that, that we can embrace so that we can begin to find ways to address um, those forces, uh, those white supremacist forces that are still um, working to, to um, bring us backwards. Whether we talk about stand mm-hmm. your ground, we talk about the evisceration of the of the, the voter rights, um, we talk about the growth in hate groups. Um, that, that that we can look at all of that and recognize that we have been through worse, and that it was the strength of that re- culture of resistance, that strength that we brought with us from Africa. And it's not something, you know, you were talking earlier, why, why my trip to Africa? The resistance of Africans to enslavement in the Western Hemisphere was not something new. Africans on the continent, traditional African cultures on the continent, had found ways to resist the incursion of Islam to resist the incursion of Christianity, to resist the incursion of colonialism. And, and that resistance of traditional culture was a part of the tradition that we brought that allowed us to see resistance as part and parcel of the way one reacted to um, uh, oppression um, uh-huh. or to, 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 to foreign ideas, foreign practices. Um, now that I, leads I, I us to, I, I understand clearly, that leads me to think about um, our next topic, which is uh, Du Bois. Tell us how Du Bois fits into your trip in this form of resistance, because he was uh, a, a rebel and he had a social um, revolt going on. Would you agree? Du Bois. Du Bois is, is one of my heroes, uh, along with Frederick Douglass, uh, along with Malcolm. Um, du Bois was probably the singularly greatest scholar of the 20th century. 
Um, and Du Bois was driven out of this country because of his opposition to the white supremacist government and to his embrace of uh, Marxist socialism as, uh, uh, an effect, as he saw it as an effective vehicle for uh, black liberation. Um, remember, in addition to the, um, the, the monuments uh, marking enslavement in Ghana and Senegal, um, I had the opportunity to visit um, the, the, um, the uh, grave sites of both Nkrumah, um, the, the father of, um, of uh, Ghanaian um, um, liberation from colonialism, um, and uh-huh. the boys. And um, so the, 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 there was a sense of the pilgrimage not being a pilgrimage to uh, the ancestors who perished um, in the slave trade, but a pilgrimage to uh, acknowledge and honor uh, the ancestors who continued that struggle, uh, both on the African continent and, and here uh, in, in the diaspora. So what did you see about the voice once you, you know, what was there? Well, there, there is, you know, he had worked on uh, um, an Encyclopedia Africana, and the work that he had done on the encyclopedia is housed there at his home in Ghana. Um, there is a conference center. Um, there is um, um, a, uh, a small uh, building um, in which is uh, his tomb. Um, and uh, I saw his library. Um, and the conference center, and uh, visited the tomb. Um, yeah, as I, I have did. a quick question about the tomb, and I have to get this off before I forget. Now, you said that the water was sacred to the Africans, mm-hmm. and today many people bury their loved ones in the earth. Some people, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, they cremate their, their loved ones. Mm-hmm. What is the tradition for Africans? And you see in Egypt, there's tombs. Why do we have these various ways of burying ourselves? Well, you and know, which, um, how does the culture fit into it? Dr. Dr. Blakey makes the point that uh, humans are the only species that buries its dead that we are the only ones who give honor to, their, to our dead by burying them. Um, and um, if you can imagine, and I'm, I'm going to indulge a little bit of, of uh, imagination to, to talk a little bit about um, the way the Congolese view the universe. And if you mm-hmm. can imagine a cross and um, the horizontal line of that cross represents the division between the living above the, and, the, and the spirits below, um, and the vertical line represents the communication between um, the living and the dead. And if you imagine a circle that kind of goes in the center of that so that it is around where the horizontal and vertical lines meet, 
And that circle is the water, the medium through which the spirits go and through which we communicate with them and they with us. Um, and around that, um, at the four points of that cross, if we start on the right horizontal side, there, there are four uh, smaller circles or moments of the sun, and they move counterclockwise around the cross the same way the, the, the sun moves across the tropical skies. And so on the right horizontal, you have the circle that represents dawn and birth. And then you move to the top, and it's noon, the height of physical power, the source of male power. And to the left, horizontal, and nightfall and death. And to the bottom, midnight, the height of spiritual power, the source of female power, which comes around again to birth. And so in that, we see the, 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 the continuity of life, but the continuity of life that, that, that does not just talk about the living, but talks about the continuity between those who are living and, and those who have made their transition and have become ancestors. So that, that, yeah. that was, the, that was the, the Congolese way of seeing the universe. Uh, every culture... Um, draws upon whatever its beginnings are to, to create an understanding of the life process and create an understanding of, of, of death and its meaning. Um, mm. and, um, because I, when I, we look at it from the biblical standpoint, um, you know, when Christ was um, uh, crucified, he was originally supposed to be buried, but then some rich man paid for his tomb mm-hmm. yet yet the um the traitor judas he was buried in the um what do we call it potter's field mm-hmm. where nothing could grow was bearing and it had sharp edges from the the pottery so mm-hmm. when we look at when we look at the two one was buried in the earth and the other one was in a tomb what 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 do Africans you say? You know, the African culture. What did you learn about well, who would be buried in the ground versus which culture wanted them to be put in a tomb the way they did the boys? I was just wondering: does everyone is everyone buried in a tomb? Or well, I think that, that 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 distinction is one which is particular to the uh, to the Christian um, the Christian story. Um, mm-hmm. For Africans, um, Africans um, are buried in the ground, but they are buried in the ground near water so that they mm-hmm. can avail themselves of that medium to make their journey to the, to the, um, uh, uh, to, to, to the, the ancestral uh, realm. Um, in mm-hmm. Haiti, two symbols, you've got um, two guardians of the burial ground, uh, Manmen Brigitte, who was the female guardian of the burial ground, and um, the Baron Samedi, her husband, who was the male guardian. And it's the, the, the symbolism there is really uh, um, fascinating. It is said that when Manmen Brigitte looks out uh, across the burial ground and sees the cross that is the symbol of Le Baron Samedi, she allows that spirit passage into the afterlife. 
When you look carefully at the symbol for Manmen Brigitte, you see that it is, in addition to being its own symbol, it incorporates two uh, symbols from two traditions. Um, you can see the similarities between Menmen Brigitte and um, and Alegba, um, and you can see the presence of the Akan Adinkra symbol, um, both the one for look to the past to inform the future, Sankofa, as well as the symbol for um, infatigability. Um, and so the, 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 what you see is Menman Brigitte, who is, as is Legba, the guardian of the crossroads, uh, looking at the cross, looking at back to the life of those um, deceased to inform their future, i.e. as guardian of the crossroads to determine if they will be allowed to move into the land of the ancestors. And you see the ways in which Africans have drawn upon the Yoruba and the Akan traditions uh, to create the symbolism of their own acknowledgement of the dead. And at the same time, let's go back to the Jive story. Mm -hmm. um, when Africans arrived here, we had two choices. We could either Africanize the Christian traditions that we found, mm -hmm. or in order to protect it and keep it secrecy, we could Christianize the traditional spiritual traditions that we found. And so if you look at the African-American church, you see call and response immersion, baptism, possession by the spirit, polyphonic and polyrhythmic music, um, the organization of men's and women's societies, the relationship of family to church, the role of the preacher, did I mention sacred dance, and the, the, the treatment of the elder mothers, the queen mothers, the motherboard. In each of those, we see a direct parallel to traditional African spiritual or governance traditions. Africans incorporated those African dimensions into the African-American church. On the other hand, if you look at Voodoo in New Orleans or Voodoo in, 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 in Haiti, you're looking at the tradition from Benin, if you look at Santeria in Cuba, you are talking about Yoruba. Um, if you look at um, the traditions in Brazil, in the houses of Contemplé, you're looking at a variety of spiritual traditions. And in many instances, traditions adopted Christians, the, the symbols of Christian saints for two reasons. Number one, they recognized the spiritual power of those symbols. And number two, the use of the symbols helped to, 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 to be a jive cover so the slaveholder could look and think that these poor ignorant Africans didn't know what they were doing when in point of fact they were able to hide under that cover the reality of their maintenance of traditional African spiritual traditions. And coming back then to, to, to Maman Brigitte and Le Baron Samedi, the use of the cross to represent Le Baron Samedi uh, is that same process, that, 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 that using a Christian symbol as a way of keeping undercover the reality of the deeper African tradition and process that was seen as going on between these two guardians in the burial ground. So, oh. um, yes. So I'm studying the Underground Railroad. I can definitely... Um 
relate to what you're saying because uh, the Africans were extremely shrewd. Uh, even Booker T. Washington in relationship with uh, the voice. Mm-hmm. You know, when they said Booker was really um, financing the voice's projects. But that's another story. Let's talk about the university that you visited. Well, I visited um, two universities um, okay. um, in Senegal. Um, I was able. There are two institutes at the University um, in Dakar. Um, one is the West African Research Center, which is a cooperative uh, venture um, between uh, scholars in Ghana and scholars in the United States. Uh, that is a place where um, uh, Africana scholars can go and can study um, West Africa and better understand it and further the scholarship that talks about West Africa. And then there is the Institute for Black Africa, which performs a similar function for all of of Sub-Saharan Africa. and some of the staff there, one of the staff that I met there was one of the scholars who worked on the African burial ground here in New York. And the director is someone who is deeply involved in an international movement to recognize sites of conscience. Those sites that are, involved, that, that, that are representative of struggles for human rights, um, Almina Castle, uh, Gory Island, um, um, and uh, a number of South American sites that, that recognize um, the, the um, uh, oppression of people um, under totalitarian regimes. And I was able to meet with the director there uh, who's involved in the sites of conscience movement. Um, and uh, what else? I met with a number of scholars, scholars of, of, of ancient Africa. Um, I met with a brother when I was in, in, in Ghana who was a scholar who had been um, invited over at the time that the remains were returned from Howard University. He had been invited over from Ghana to pour libation on the return of the ancestors. And... Um, uh, a week ago, uh, this past Friday, um, he uh, honored uh, us by pouring libation for um, for Maya Angelou, for Alambe Braff, for um, Farrah DeWitt, who was a colleague of mine who had been involved in a digital literacy project in, in Ghana. Um, and um, uh, also in Ghana, uh, there was a brother whose first name is Patrick and his last name is escaping me at the moment, who was from Ghana and came here and studied um, and went to work for Microsoft, became very successful in, in the executive ranks of Microsoft. Uh, married and had a child and decided that it was important to him for his child to have an experience of Ghana. And so he returned to Ghana with the intention of um, developing a a software development 
uh, company in Ghana. And when he got there, he realized that the skills were not there to allow him to do that. And so instead, he started a university. And we visited that university. It's on an absolutely gorgeous campus, about an hour and a half outside of Accra. And it is, um, it, it's built around a, 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 a um, liberal arts core and a leadership core. Um, all of the students are required to take a leadership course each and every year where they mm -hmm. look at the nature of leadership, where they look at the meaning of leadership for Africa, and where they take that leadership and go out into the local community. Um, they moved out into the village beside the, 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 um, the university, and they began to bring the young people in for literacy classes and found that the students were not staying because the parents did not have a vested interest in their education. And so they began to work with the parents. And they now mm -hmm. have an active program working with the parents um, around uh, educational issues for themselves and for the children. And in another mm -hmm. village, they did a water reclamation project. So that, that one of the core elements of the university is, is this idea of leadership. Um, and they see themselves as, and they have students from across the continent and are beginning to introduce students from, from uh, Europe and from the United States. Um, their, their goal is to develop a pan-African leadership cadre. They spend a lot of effort working with their alumni to maintain an ongoing uh, cooperative assistance network. So that mm -hmm. if I am in Mali and I have a problem, I can reach out to a classmate from my year or three or four years ahead or behind uh, who's doing some similar kind of work, and I can say, you know, I ran across this problem. What can we do to solve it? And so the oh, wow. university sees itself as being the, the, the source of the development of a, pan a cadre of pan-African leadership. Um, network. They have, a Pan-African yes. leadership network, sounds like. Yes, um, yes. Let's, let's uh, before, uh, before I, to the before next I leave, hmm? Well, hmm? before I leave there, one more comment. They have okay. a 10-year grant from, Microsoft, uh, from um, MasterCard in uh -huh. which they are able to provide scholarships, and they reach out to institutions that are working with youth to identify really, really bright kids who would otherwise be unable to go to college. And they bring those students in and they provide them with a four-year scholarship so that youngsters okay. who would not otherwise be able to go to university um, are, are supported for the four years and, um, and their education is supported not only by the scholarship but by um, by the subsidy of, of the students who can afford to pay. And, and that, well, I how can they another... find this information? Can we Google MasterCard? And yeah, I, what I would do to... is I would, I would Google Chessie University. That's A-S-H-E-S-I, Chessie University um, in Ghana. And on their website, you can so it would probably be chessie.edu. Uh, that's okay. dot edu. Um, but if not, then just Google Ashesi University. 
and you can okay. get information from there. All right. Well, we um, only have two more questions, and, and that has to do with the two pictures that you had on your Facebook, and I um, share them with my Facebook page and uh, on my Facebook page and on my Twitter page, and got a very good response. They are the pictures of the Renaissance African monument. Renaissance monument and, and uh, the tomb. The, Let's start the off Kuma. with the, the monument, and then we'll go to okay. the tomb, and then we'll wrap it up for tonight. All right. Um, okay. The monument is, is when you get off the airplane in, in Dakar, um, you look off to one side of the, of the airport, and there is a hill, and you can see clearly um, the, the African Renaissance Monument, and it shows a family with a young child who is pointing back towards the continent, inviting Africans of the diaspora to return to the continent. And it is a, a, a mother and a father and the child, um, and it's an, an absolutely massive um, sculpture, um, and I certainly recommend that anyone who visits the car should take the time to visit the monument and take a tour of the monument and to see the artwork that's on display there and to, to get a sense of, of the, the power of it and the way in which it dominates uh, the car. Um, and the, the second picture is Nkrumah's tomb, um, and, of course, Nkrumah was the first president of Ghana, was uh, one of the uh, progenitors of the um, struggle against colonialism that led to, uh, to freedom in, in Ghana. Um, and um, in addition to the um, slave dungeons and the boys' burial place and um, Slave River, uh, I was able to visit Nkrumah's memorial. Um, and the um, museum, which is a part of that property. Uh, it's a very, very impressive monument. Um, it, going out from the front of it, uh, there are sculptures of um, those Africans who would um, announce the, the coming of a king, the drummers and the musicians who would play the horns, uh, the curved uh, ram's horns, um, so that there are the the the, the, the um, uh, that entourage of drummers and and horn players that uh, uh, come out from the front of the of the of the uh, the memorial, um, and it was another of those um, spiritual touchstones that uh, you know until you are in until you are there. It's really, it is much more an intellectual understanding um, of your relationship to the continent, of your relationship to that tradition. But when you are there, you have a realization of the spiritual and emotional relationship that you have as well. Um, and um, I, I strongly recommend... Uh, to young African-descendant people today um, to try and find the resources um, early on, as young as they can, um, to make that pilgrimage, to begin to establish that relationship 
to begin to have the the network of people that um, makes the, the, the our relationship to to, to a pan African reality um, operable, so that we're not just talking abstractly. We're talking in terms of an emotional and spiritual and intellectual and an interpersonal relationship with that broader Pan-African reality. So I, I strongly wow. recommend that to our youth. And I would also remind our youth of the words of uh, Frederick Douglass, power concedes nothing without a demand, agitate, agitate, agitate. And if we are wow. indeed not going to go back, Remember, the, the distance between the end of Reconstruction in 1877 and the birth of the NAACP in the Jim Crow uh, segregated lynching environment of 1904 is only about 30 years. 30 mm-hmm. years in which things went from all of the advances of African descendant people in Reconstruction to the Jim Crow lynching environment at the beginning of the 20th century. So the fact that we have a president uh, in the White House who is a person of color is no guarantee in and of itself. As we look at voter suppression, as we look at the evisceration of the voter rights bill, as we look at stand your ground, as we look at the growth of hate groups, um, the elements are there that could turn it around once again. And the only way that's not going to happen is as our young people, as they did in the 60s, begin to actively agitate to prevent that from happening, actively agitate to create um, a counterforce to the white supremacist instincts of this country and begin to move towards establishing a true freedom for people of African descent. That's a mouthful, but it's uh, some great words, and I think our young people will appreciate it. And I want to thank you for coming on and this is our third attempt to have you on, and, and it worked. I'm glad we were able to do it. And uh, you must come back on again uh, and read some of your poetry because you have a lot going on. You have things published in several magazines. So I want to be able to um, delve into that area of your life as well. So will you well, agree to come I, back on? I certainly will. I thank you very much for your persistence. and. Yeah. Um, and I certainly would like to accept an invitation. And thank you very much for your invitation to come on now, and I hope I've been able to make some contribution to your listenership. To me personally, you did. So I hope the audience is just as appreciative as I am. So you have a great night, and um, I hope to see you soon. As, as some wise man once said, be good to life. Let life be good to you. Peace, love, and happiness, right. great sister. I'm gone. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Oh, okay.
money. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.